Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Glenn Hubbard. A little bit about Mr. Hubbard. He was the former Deputy Assistant Secretary to the U.S. Treasury from 1991 to 1993. He was former Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2003. And lastly, from 2004 to 2019, Mr. Hubbard was the Dean at Columbia's Graduate School of Business, one of the top business schools in the world. Mr. Hubbard is widely considered as one of the top economists in the world. As of right now, Mr. Hubbard is a professor at Columbia's Graduate School of Business. Today, Mr. Hubbard and I will be talking about entrepreneurial finance and economic policy. And when it comes to learning about economics and finance, it doesn't get any better than Mr. Hubbard. So without further ado, Mr. Hubbard, thank you for joining and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. My pleasure. Before we jump into today's discussion, I'd love to hear your story on how you got into economics and finance and eventually became the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and the dean at Columbia School of Business. Well, it's a long story, but with a few inflection points, I I started out in college uh, in electrical engineering and found that I really loved economics more. It brought all the math that I enjoyed about engineering and computer science that I was very interested in but with an eye toward real policy problems. So I pursued graduate work in economics at Harvard as a result and and really never looked back, fell fell in love with economics. I actually believe that economics and economic policy has the power to change people's lives uh, for the better. And that always influenced me. I've always been interested in political economy, not really politics per se, but the application of of economics and the political sphere. And so when I had the opportunity to go to the Treasury Department uh, in the early 90s, I I took it. Uh, I met uh, then President George H.W. Bush in that administration. It was his administration. I met his son, George W. Bush, and then worked with um, George W. Bush when he was governor of Texas in helping getting him ready to run for the presidency. So that was my entree into the Council of Economic Advisors. Both times I was in Washington, I left with new research topics and interest in teaching. So for me, and I think for most economists who have that opportunity, it's uh, it's very valuable. So a bit of planning, but a lot of serendipity. Great. Now, I've done a lot of research on you, and you have an amazing career. Now, before we get started on today's topics, I want to talk to you a little bit about your career as a chair of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors. So for those who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the Council of Economic Advisors is? And as a former chairman for the council, how were you chosen for this position? And what were your responsibilities when it came to advising President Bush? Great question. So first, how you're chosen. It's appointed by the president as a chair. And there's uh, two members, and the chair is confirmed by the United States Senate and sits as a member of the president's cabinet, depending on the administration. Different presidents make different choices. Uh, you, the job is really like a consulting firm with one client, and the client is the president. And the CEA is very small. There are about 35 or so professional economists. Some are more seniors, some are juniors, some are research assistants, a small support staff, but it's really very valuable in the administration because it coordinates across economic parts of agencies like the Treasury Department or the State Department or the Defense Department uh, to coordinate the president's economic policy. 
their regular briefings the chair would do with the president on the current state of the economy. And during my time there, there were so many big shifts like uh, 9-11 and corporate accounting scandals and stock market crash and recessions. There was, and of course, the president's major policy agenda, there was abundant opportunity to get involved. So the council, while it's very small uh, and has only been in existence since 1946, has had a pretty big role over many decades in economic policy. Now, as you said, you started in 2001 after the dot-com bubble and the 9-11 recession. And I'm curious, what were the greatest challenges you faced and what were your biggest accomplishments as chairman? The challenges were certainly many. For me as an academic economist coming into a leadership position like that, it was figuring out how to mobilize an all-of-government response for the president's agenda. So that could be anything from coordinating his tax and budget plans through the agencies and then ultimately through the Congress, through um, the New York City rescue package, which was part of 9-11, the broader economic recovery package, putting those together in a coordinated way. Because remember, CEA on its own is a staff organization. It doesn't have power other than its relationship with the president. So that, I think, was the biggest challenge. What I'm most proud of is the fact that President Bush really cared a lot about economic policy. You know, some presidents do and some presidents don't. I mean, to be candid, he put a lot of weight on it. So I had the opportunity to work on many things, ranging from tax policy to being a point person for Japan and Argentina, both of which were going through different but very important uh, economic troubles uh, at the time, and being the point person for the 9-11 plan. So that that I viewed as a, as a big accomplishment, and I certainly got out of it, a lot out of it, uh, mainly due to the president's great interest. Now, I read on your Wikipedia that you were very um, important when it came to uh, instituting tax cuts for President Bush from 2001 to 2003. Could you explain kind of that process? Were you more of... I suggest ideas to him and then he'd institute them? Um, or would you send a report into him and then you guys would further discuss the plans? A little curious on that. Well, sort of all of the above. President Bush, when he was Governor Bush, campaigned on a big tax plan. So we went into office with a very big tax plan. What we didn't know is that the economy looked very different not long after President Bush took office than when Governor Bush campaigned, meaning the onset of a recession. The, the way the tax plan got rolled out necessarily had to change a little bit. It, it sounds crazy now in today's world of deficits and debt, but during the campaign in 2000, the big issue was surpluses and what to do with them. So believe it or not, the government was running structural surpluses. And then the question is, uh, is that a good thing? And I think President Bush's view, candidate Bush's view as well, was no. Um, as a, an advisor during the campaign, I thought the best thing he could have done was to reform the Social Security system with the money. Uh, he chose a tax cut, which I then designed for him. But I, I think politically his decision made sense, although economically I still think we <laughs> could have done a good job with, with Social Security. Uh, we focused the tax policy uh, principally on lower and moderate income Americans, uh, there were also, uh, in 2003, tax cuts uh, on capital income to stimulate investment. 
But I, I think that the tax cuts came about in an environment of surpluses and an economy that needed shoring up. Great. Now, going into our first topic, which is economic policy. Now, I know the two main economic theories that promote economic growth consist of the demand side and the supply side. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with these terms, could you explain what supply side economics is and what demand side economics is? And from what I've read, why do you prefer supply side economics? Well, see, I don't think of them as two competing theories. I think of them as a coin with one side. So in any uh, simple economic framing, there's both supply and demand. There always is. And so it's not that there's one or the other. When people say demand-side economics, what they usually mean is a focus on public policies trying to influence the level of aggregate demand. Uh, when people say supply-side, what they usually mean is a focus on incentives. So if I change marginal tax rates on individuals, does that affect their propensity to work, the number of hours they work, whether they want to start a business? If I change tax rates on businesses, does that affect investment? So they're, they're both important. So I, I don't particularly favor one over the other. I think they're both very important for policy. And it depends on the question you're trying to ask. People usually think about demand side considerations at a business cycle frequency, booms and busts, and so-called supply side or incentive-based policies when you're thinking about the long run growth trajectory. So I think they're, they're really both important. And I think when politicians talk about them as if it were a battle between one or the other, I think they kind of miss the point of the analogy of a coin with two sides. Great. Now, from what I've read in the news, uh, Republicans, they want to adopt supply-side economics. So I was curious on your opinion of this. If the U.S. were to adopt supply-side economics like the Republican Party would prefer, how could you be sure that companies wouldn't actually use the tax cuts to create new jobs instead of using it for stock buybacks and automation? Great questions. I mean, first, I have no idea what the Republican Party would prefer because I'm not quite sure I know what the Republican Party is uh, anymore. If you mean sort of classic neoliberal policy, uh, you know, coming from academic stalwarts like Milton Friedman or Friedrich Hayek through politicians like Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, if that's what you mean by a Republican Party, which isn't, by the way, the Republican Party of today, but if that's what you mean, there is a big focus on incentives. But I think first and foremost, there's a focus on the size of government uh, and wanting to have a small government, not so much for the budget sense of it, but more about individual liberty and freedom in that uh, in, in that point of view. So I think that's really what the typical uh, Republican platform is today. Got it. Great. So. I am curious as well, what are your thoughts on President Biden proposing to reverse many of the Trump tax back in 2016 through 2019, like increased corporate taxes and uh, invidious taxes on the wealthy and his new American jobs and infrastructure plan? Great question. So one of the disappointments I have in President Biden is things he's not reversing in the Trump era. In other words, President Trump was way too infatuated, in my view as an economist, with protectionism, whether it was trade protectionism, uh, anti-immigrant policy, or whether it was um, 
industrial policy to favor one sector of the economy. The Biden administration is repeating all those things. So uh, th that's the real irony. We, to your question about tax policy, to me, one of the economic policies I actually agreed with in the Trump years was the business side of what was called the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, mm -hmm. so called Trump's tax, tax cut, uh, where there was a cut in the corporate rate uh, to bring the U.S. Uh, toward norms in other countries. I, I still think that's, that's the right idea. What President Biden is proposing is not a modest change in that, but a really almost complete reversal because the, the tax increases on international business income and so-called minimum taxes really raise the tax burden on investment and make U.S. firms less competitive. If you raise the corporate tax, just from an economic 101 perspective, you have to do one of two things. You're either going to discourage investment, which means a lower capital stock, a lower level of productivity, and a lower level of wages, or you're going to hurt assets, but that means pushing down stock prices. But most Americans own stocks through pension plans and other things. So there's no free lunch with raising the corporate tax. On the individual tax pieces, we haven't yet seen that, the increases in capital gains taxes, estate taxes, and other things. So I, I don't know what the administration will wind up doing. Great. Now, that is that is great perspectives. Now, I want to dive more into the economy and its overall health. So given the COVID recession, the federal government and the Fed has stepped in in a big way with massive stimulus spending and money printing, as well as bond buying, which I assume the Fed buying bonds in the open market will give more cash to the general public by swapping out bonds. Are you concerned with Biden's large deficit spending and future inflation problems? Yes and no. So I, I'm not one of the, let me start with inflation. I, I am not worried that inflation is about to get out of hand. I think we will see a transitory increase in inflation. The real question is whether individuals and business people's uh, expectations about inflation are well anchored. And so far they, they seem to be. And the Fed does have tools to deal with rapidly rising inflation should that, uh, should that occur. I think for too long, uh, politicians lean too heavily on the Fed to fix problems, fiscal policies better uh, at solving. So to give you an example, if I try to lower interest rates a lot during the great financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic, which the Fed helpfully did, that will boost aggregate demand, the intended effect, but it will also boost asset prices, that is, make inequality worse than it was before. So if you had assets, the Fed action made you richer. If you didn't have assets, it didn't help you at all. That's something fiscal policy could do better. Now to President Biden's issue. To me, it's not so much the deficit and debt, although I, I do worry more than the president seems to about uh, fiscal spending. My worry is more whether it's smart. And so if you're thinking about something called infrastructure, which is what he's called his new plan, to me, something is legitimately infrastructure if it adds to our capacity for productivity and wealth. That could be physical, like building a new or repairing a bridge or an airport. It could be technology, like broadband or internet access, but it's not home elder care and other 
items that are social spending being called infrastructure. So that part uh, does worry me. There's also a big opportunity cost because if we goose up social spending, we're really missing an opportunity to prepare more Americans for the world of the future. So to be tangible, that would mean things like support for community colleges or training programs, uh, ways to support low-wage work. We're missing all those opportunities to go on a social spending spree. And as deficit spending does increase, I'm curious, are you worried about the national debt? Because my favorite investor, Howard Marks, uh, I saw an interview a while ago. He talked about how he, how he was so worried about the national debt. He said it's like the U.S. has a credit card, but they never have to pay off their payments, their interest. Well, you have to be somewhat careful because oftentimes it's useful in storytelling to reason from an individual or a business to a government, but this is one where it really is. So what a national debt represents is um, payments that are backed by a government's power to tax. And a tax can be an explicit tax, like a tax on you and me. Uh, It can also be an implicit tax, like inflation, that could reduce the value of bonds. To me, whether the debt is too high depends on a couple of things. One, what are you using it for? You know, is it for productive assets or is it for social spending that should be paid for in the here and now if you want to do it? Uh, And, you know, is this debt going to be serviceable at a low cost? Now, at current interest rates, it is. I mean, interest rates in most advanced economies are very, very low. In fact, The U.S. is almost the high interest rate country among advanced economies. But the question is, what would interest rates look like if inflation were solidly back to 2% and we had more robust economic growth, things the administration says it wants? Uh, Then Mr. Marx is right. Then we have a big problem on our hand. And and, And I've seen nothing from President Biden that suggests he's either A, aware of, or B, has a plan for that problem. Now, I, I, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned before that when the Fed were to lowest interest rates, asset prices would most likely increase because you said investors are more willing to put money into equities, right? So that would be the yeah, stock a, market? Uh, exactly. It's a present value argument. So a stock, a share of stock is just the present value of the future cash flows from that stock. And so when the Fed takes a policy action to reduce discount rates, it's reducing the discount rate in that present value math. Uh, At the same time, typically periods of low uh, interest rates are also periods of low risk premia in assets so that risky assets tend tend to do fairly well. So if you were to hold risky assets in a period like that, like stocks, uh, you would do very well. The problem is some Americans don't have any wealth, and so they don't have those financial assets. So it's definitely a boost to the wealthy. Great. Now, uh, I want to go on and talk about economic recovery. So given the huge success in vaccination, I believe um, we'll be maybe around in August, September, 70% herd immunity. So in the U.S., it appears the U.S. and the global economy is rebounding significantly. So do you believe we are out of the woods? And if not, what will be the major economic risks and problems post-crisis? Great questions. I don't think we're out of the woods. Even for the vaccine, 
there's three stages. There's basic science, which is a huge success story. I mean, if you think about the speed with which the um, messenger RNA virus um, vaccines were produced, really impressive. Second would be production. That too was impressive because the U.S. government and some other governments pre-contracted for vaccine supplies. So, so far, so good. Where we're not out of the woods is on distribution. So the U.S., while it got made fun of a little bit, has actually done a pretty good job relative to many other advanced economies in distributing vaccines. So we really have to do better at distribution. The European Union is clearly struggling relative to the United States in uh, in that regard. We're not out of the woods in the labor market. 10 million people need a job who still don't have one. So we are recovering. But make no mistake about it, we're not where we are. were. And then the hardest part, in the sense in which we'll have the pandemic with us, whether or not it's with us physically in the sense of a virus, it'll be with us in structural changes in the economy. So will people work in offices as much as they used to? Will they have business travel as much as they used to? Will they eat out in restaurants or go to theaters and concerts as much as they used to? I just named sectors of the economy where there's big components of wealth and economic activity, and they're going to change. So in that sense, we're definitely not out of the woods. Great. Now, I want to move on to your next stage of your career, which was being the dean at Columbia's Graduate School of Business, and as well as teaching a very well-known class, entrepreneurial finance, for the executive MBA classes. So basically, as the former dean of Columbia's Graduate School of Business, I'm curious why you decided to go from government to academia. So to start off, what led you to transition from the White House as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to the dean of Columbia's School of Business? Well, there are a few steps around that. So I've always been an academic. So I started my career teaching uh, at Northwestern uh, in Evanston, Illinois, right after I graduated and then moved to Columbia and visited a number of places. So when I did stints in government, it was always as a leave from academia. Academia is really my home. When I came back from Washington, I went back to the faculty uh, and then the trustees asked me to be the dean uh, of the of the business school. I was actually in the economics department. Uh, to me, it was a very interesting opportunity because I saw business schools at the time as punching under their weight in terms of uh, bringing theory of a university together with practice. I saw some business schools that were great at practice, but not so much about scholarship. I saw some business schools that had great scholarship, but not that much influence on practice. And I thought Columbia, because of its location physically in New York, which is a global business capital with alumni who are global business leaders in every possible way, we had a niche, a competitive advantage. So that's why I took it. And that was the theme that I I wanted to pursue, literally building a bridge between theory and practice. In the university, we're very good at new ideas, but the commercial world around us is very good at applying those ideas. And the idea was to build an ecosystem. And that made the job a lot of fun, uh, you know, in addition to having fantastic students and fantastic faculty colleagues. So that sounds, that sounds great. Yeah, being a dean must be fun. Uh, so what was your role as dean? I think many students, even myself, we don't really know what 
is incorporated when it comes to running one of the top business schools in the world. And I'm curious, what were some of your major initiatives and accomplishments that you're most proud of there? Well, it's a great question. So to start, as a dean, I taught every term. I wanted to make it clear to students that I wasn't some guy in a wood paneled office in the corner somewhere that they never saw or saw um you know, only at their high church days, like the first day of school and graduation. I wasn't going to be that kind of dean. With that symbolism in mind, I wanted to teach entrepreneurship because I saw the business schools having an opening there and people watch what a leader does and how he or she spends his time. So that's, I did that deliberately as kind of a shot across the bow so the students would pay attention and, and colleagues uh, would pay attention. A lot of the job is administrative. And so being a private university like Columbia, funds have to be raised. You know, we get no support from governments. And so uh, other than tuition, every dollar that goes into the budget is fundraised. And we are just finishing up a big campus project that I had fundraised for. So during my tenure, we raised a billion dollars from donors. And that all went into financial aid, buildings, and so on. But what I'm most proud of really is this pivot in the MBA program toward the bridge between theory and practice and toward really focusing students on developing themselves as leaders uh, and not just analysts. You know, it's when I first became Dean, people would tell me your students and the students at any top business school, they're all really smart, but we don't think they can solve problems. And I didn't want that to be true when I left. So we did a lot on practical problem solving, on leadership. Our students were all smart. They always were. Uh, but we, we really honed those leadership skills. That's probably what I'm most proud of. The buildings are the biggest thing, but in terms of dollars, but in terms of pride, it would be those intellectual themes. Great. Now, I want to move on to the class you teach at entre- uh, about entrepreneurial finance. Now, I think entrepreneurial finance is one of the most important topics in all of the finance world. But I think Gen Z, like myself, we often become more and more obsessed with the stock market and investing. So we often overlook this idea of raising capital and valuation of a business, even though we may enter a career in finance one day. So could you elaborate more on what entrepreneurial finance is in simple terms? Well, for me, and I, I'm probably not everybody would give this definition, I think of it as identifying, financing, valuing, and exiting opportunity. So I always ask students day one in the class, how many of you are interested in being an entrepreneur? Or how many of you are interested in the other side of that world, venture capital, private equity? The students are typically 50-50. And then I use the same analogy I did a few minutes ago with you have a coin with two sides. I said, we're going to have to understand both and then we're going to do that together. But I think of the core of being a great entrepreneur is first and foremost, spotting an opportunity. And to me, what I would call a promising startup is a great opportunity that has a whole bunch of embedded options in it. So I like to show students the 1996 memo from Jeff Bezos to the first investors where he offered 10% of Amazon for $500,000. Pretty good deal if you you had done that. Uh, And what was interesting about that business plan is even in 1996, what Jeff Bezos was doing was describing a whole portfolio of options 
that if I do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And so I always try to get students to understand what is optionality and how do you know when a firm actually has it? Uh, and is that the right entrepreneur for doing it? So I, I teach primarily using case studies of actual deals uh, where we evaluate the entrepreneur and the financier. And I deliberately pick some that worked well and some that didn't, because frankly, students have to learn from both. But I think it's a class that's useful for students who are interested in, in uh, entrepreneurship. And it's different from the stock market in that we teach in basic finance that you shouldn't bear a lot of idiosyncratic risk in your general portfolio. Um, you should diversify, in other words. But in entrepreneurial finance, it's just the opposite. An entrepreneur typically has to have all of his or her assets and well-being in a business. So how do you handle that kind of investment? So it's a little bit different than classic investment theory. So how how would you say it's different from venture capital finance? Because I think... Well, I think it's quite similar in some ways. So just like an entrepreneur is an insider with private information. Like I know more about my idea than you do. Venture capital is a general partner who knows a lot about particular projects, who takes money from limited partners, and then has to give those limited partners a rate of return that makes them want to invest in the venture capital partnership. Same thing is true of the entrepreneur. If I deal with you as a venture capitalist, I have to make it attractive for you to invest in my business, and you have to give me the incentives to succeed. So I try to work with students to understand that if you strip away all the legalisms and words, venture capital contracts aren't that different really than classic entrepreneurship. Venture capital relationships with their limited partners aren't that different than an entrepreneur's relationship uh, with, the, with the venture capitalist. Depending on the time in the industry, different groups have the upper hand. So sometimes entrepreneurs have the hot hand. You know, everybody wants to fund this guy or this kind of industry. Uh, sometimes venture capital has the hot hand and entrepreneurs get low valuations. So uh, all of that is important. Great. Now, I may be wrong about this, but in your class description for entrepreneurial finance, you explain or you say there's something called a life cycle of entrepreneurial yep. financial decisions. So I was curious, could you briefly go into more detail about the different stages and what do they mean when the business is operating? Sure. So, uh, you know, as I was saying in the definition of entrepreneurial finance, it begins with um, what's an opportunity? And the framework I try to use with students is there are four elements in thinking about entrepreneurship, people, opportunity, context, and deal. You know, what is the opportunity? And as an economist, an opportunity to me means a, a cash flow machine. Describe that to me. The people part is why is this guy or gal the right person with the right skills to use that cash flow machine? Context is, is this industry hot or cold? Is the economy booming or not? You know, those are things that you and I as individuals don't control, but they're super important. And then deal, how do we put all that together to make you want to invest in my venture? So after opportunity, we look at financing rounds. So how do you finance? Typically, it's done in stages as options are revealed and, and priced. Uh, we look at how you negotiate. You know, between that's another stage of negotiating your financing deal. And then a lot of the uh, life of a startup is spent in 
for lack of a better term, I would just call tough stuff. You know, how do you deal with that when uh, cash is low or financial markets seize up or a joint venture you thought was working well isn't? You know, we go through all those things. And then the last stage is exit, which could be the sale of a firm. <laughs> it could be an IPO. Uh, it could be taking a firm private in some other way, or frankly, it could be a failure. But that's really the life cycle from the birth of an opportunity to the ultimate um, to the ultimate exit. Now, I want to touch base on uh, what I believe is the second most important when it or let me let me correct that the the most important stage of entrepreneurial finance, which is raising capital. So truth be told, students like myself often wonder where companies get money to grow the business and expand operations. So my question then becomes, how do you raise capital for a startup? And for any new venture in general, where do you get the funding from? Great question. And boy, does it change over time. So the classic first stage uh, of entrepreneurial fundraising is usually called friends and family, because that's what it is. In other words, you go to people close to you, it would help if some of those friends and family had entrepreneurial street grit so that in addition to being able to write you a check, their name meant something in, in fundraising because that helps with fundraising from professionals um, uh, down the road. The good news about today is that it doesn't take that much money to start many interesting businesses. If you go back to, say, the 90s, when what was hot was building big hardware companies. That's a big investment. And so the initial investment wouldn't get you very far and then would take a big check. In today's world, think about, um, let's suppose I was trying to start a biotech company with a brand new therapy. That's a massive cash infusion that's required uh, in part for research and development, in part because the Food and Drug Administration's testing protocol uh, requires a lot of cash. But for many businesses, people are starting, even you know, semi-platform kinds of business and tech fintech kinds of businesses. You could start a business with not that much money. So typically what happens today is friends, family, angels, those are important sources of funds with larger scale firms, uh, venture capital type firms coming in a little later as a firm decides to scale up. Uh, and either exercise some of its options it has or um, become bigger. Great. Now, I often hear the word short-term liquidity, and I often wonder, one, what it is, and why is it so important in entrepreneurial finance when it comes to paying off these financial obligations, they say? Well, it's a very good question. Most um, young businesses, when they die, die from lack of cash. And it's very, there's an expression in entrepreneurial finance, burn rate. You know, so when you start a business, how much cash are you burning each month? So let's suppose you were investing in me to develop a prototype for some new um, office suite product, let's say. And so the goal is for me to build this prototype and then we'll see how much better it is than other office suite products and how much money we're going to make. So my burn rate would be how much cash does it cost me per month? And so you want to, as an outside investor, you'd want to be checking, am I burning faster than you thought, slower than you thought? Are we on target? Cash is king. Sometimes companies get confused and focused on 
accounting measures like earnings or things like that, when you're a young business, it's really all about the cash. And so it is not at all unusual to see outside investors and venture capitalists in particular really laser focused on the cash um, position of the company. And sometimes you'll see entrepreneurs actually raising a little more money than they need to make sure that cash cushion is there. Great. Now, I want to move on to a pretty interesting topic. Uh, the second most important stage, I feel like, in venture, uh, uh, in entrepreneurial finance, which is valuation. So obviously, when VC firms or CEOs want to take a company public, as you said, through an IPO, pre-IPO, they eventually have to value that company accurately. And in most cases, investment banks are the ones valuing the company. So how do you value a startup company? Is it based on fundamentals of the company, such as cash flow, earnings, et cetera? Great question. So a true startup, um, sometimes people say, well, numbers don't help because it's a whole new venture, a new idea. I don't agree with that at all. So numbers can tell you a lot. So for example, if I were thinking of a business that if it succeeded, there are strong network effects. So in other words, like, um, operating systems or software platforms or things like that, then I don't know if my idea is going to be very good, but I do know that if it hits, it's going to be very big. And so then the valuation question gets broken down more easily into think about the first investment is just how much do you need to invest in me to learn whether I can really do what I say I can do? So that's about staging and real options in entrepreneurial finance, very important finance uh, topics. And then at that point, we start to learn more and more about the valuation. The valuation, as people commonly do it, of a really young business is almost always close to zero. Uh, and the reason would be the discount rates people use are so high and the money is way out in the future. It's just not worth much. That's not the right way to think about valuation. The right way to think about it is, as I learn about this venture over time, what is the valuation technique? And so when you mention IPOs, by the time a company's at that stage, there typically are, if, if it's a good candidate for an IPO, comparable firms that are steady that I can use their information to help price the deal. Now, I find valuation so interesting, and I'm curious from your perspective, of course, which do you prefer, intrinsic valuation or relative valuation? Because I often hear much praise about the discounted cash flow model, as Professor Damodoran from NYU Stern stresses so much that it is really the only way to value a company properly. And I think to myself, wouldn't relative valuation be more accurate when finding the true value of a company as you're looking at their books? And rather than guessing a company's future cash flows and using those numbers and possibly being wrong in its valuation by a long shot. So I'm curious, what do you think? I think it's a bit of all of the above. So what Professor Demoterin is saying is you need a gold standard method like discounted cash flow because you know what's in it. And so when I do a discounted cash flow, you can see what I'm assuming. What, what am I assuming about specific cash flows? What am I assuming about uh, terminal growth rates and a discount rate? A problem in discounted cash flow analyses, as they're often done, is that almost all of the value, particularly for companies that probably interest people, 
uh, is in the terminal value. And so you really have modeled very much. And so practitioners often will use things like um, multiples or precedent transactions, if that's what you mean by relative uh, relative valuation. So I think of using all of them as one can corroborate the other. But the discounted cash flow is still the gold standard because you you really understand it. What venture capital firms do is um, kind of none of the above. What what they will do is a so-called venture capital method. You know, what hurdle rate do I need? How much of your firm do I need to get that in your industry? Valuations tend to be about like this and then frame the investment decision around that. It's only over time as we learn more that these other techniques like discounted cash flow come into play. So are you saying in summary that both methods are effective and both methods can be combined together, you'd say, to find the true value? Well, there is no such thing as a true value because we don't know what the cash flows are. We don't know whether the discount rate is right. For any given set of numbers you give me, the DCF will price true. But I don't know whether those numbers make any sense. And so I, whenever people say intrinsic value, I go, well, what does that mean? Because I could change the assumptions a little bit and have them be just as reasonable and change the value a lot, particularly if it's, a, say, a tech business where all the values in the terminal value, I could change tiny bit assumptions and radically change the value. So I think the question is really one of reasonableness. It's a lot harder a problem than, say, valuing IBM. Got it. So the second to last question before we end today's discussion is I often hear that capital structure is very important in just an overall company where there's stakeholders, which are creditors and equity holders. So can you explain what makes up and how how does a a capital structure work in a company? Well, for entrepreneurial companies, debt's not that important. So it's not a big deal for regular companies the extent to which a company uses borrowed funds as opposed to equity capital could vary a lot by the structure of the industry. You know, if you have stable cash flows, it's easier to have debt because it's easier to repay it. Uh, if you have very unstable cash flows, you know, big movements over the business cycle, uh, leverage tends to be uh, tends to be lower because if you can't pay, then you risk bankruptcy, and bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean a liquidation of the firm, although it might, it really means the debt holders are in charge. And so at that point, the debt holders uh, also become the equity holders. They convert and they they own the firm. And in fact, there are investors like Mr. Marks and Oak Tree that do precisely that for a living. Uh, and so this is a business model that people that people use. So from both the investor side and the firm side, Capital structures that you have to is something you have to watch and plan very carefully. And if I am correct, when a company files for bankruptcy, that's the only case in which creditors become the equity holders. Is that correct? Uh, unless they have some kind of convertible mm. uh, interest. Sometimes people have convertible securities, which they have the right but not the obligation to convert. But you're right. In general, you could think of bankruptcy as being the driver. Great. Uh, Mr. Hubbard, I think that concludes today's uh, conversation, and I want to thank you again for joining. Thanks. My pleasure.
before we end today's episode, here are the key takeaways from today's talk. In the early stages of his career, Mr. Hubbard worked with President George W. Bush to write the New York City Rescue Package after 9-11, foreign aid packages to Japan and Argentina, and the broader tax and recovery plans. When President Bush took office in 2000, Glenn worked with the president to use the nation's budgetary surplus to pass his tax cuts. The two main economic theories are supply-side economics and demand-side economics. Supply-side and demand-side aren't very different. Mr. Hubbard calls it a one-sided coin. As a modern-day economy is built off of demand and supply, demand-side refers to how public policy increases aggregate demand. When people say supply-side, we think of, for example, marginal tax rates and how it can affect corporations and everyday workers regarding their productivity. Because at the end of the day, in order to increase my spending power, I need to increase my income. So I need to increase my productivity. Glenn Hubbard is disappointed in President Biden for not reversing Trump's protectionist policies such as the trade war with China. He also thinks it would be a mistake for President Biden to undo the Trump tax cuts of 2017, which reduced the corporate tax rate. He believes this would cause the stock price of many U.S. companies to fall and make these firms less competitive. Glenn also thinks that President Biden's American Jobs and Infrastructure Plan includes too many things that aren't related to traditional infrastructure, such as home elder care. He is not concerned about the national debt as long as deficit spending is used on things that will increase the GDP.